Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Good day, everyone. This is Tony Moskal with your high school sports podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in L.A. and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? Last week, I had the pleasure of having CIF Commissioner Rob Wygon on the show. And after the show, we still had so much more to talk about. And Rob has decided to join us for part two. Rob, thanks again for joining us here on Believe. You are welcome. Glad to be back. Uh, last week, we touched on a lot of subjects that are hot button issues within our section. And one of the things that I was thinking about the whole week was how to prevent high school sports from becoming a business. With everything that's going on, club sports, travel teams, seven-on-seven, personal training, year-round participation, I think it's great kids are competing and doing things, but the reality is it's becoming a business. Kids are getting burned out. There's a lot of overuse injuries. There there are more Tommy John surgeries now in, in kids that haven't even started to shave than there ever have been. How do we prevent that, and how do we kind of reel this thing back in? I'm not sure that we can prevent it. I think what we need to do is just continue to accentuate the the special thing that we have in high school athletics. We're education-based athletics. We're student athletes trying to teach young people the life lessons that will make them better and more productive adults. It was interesting. Today in our office, we had a, a training, and the new CIF executive director was there, Ron Nachetti. And Ron and I were talking, and Ron said, you know, one of the things that we need to do more of is get a hold of student athletes and have them talk about why they love playing high school sports. And these aren't necessarily the student athletes that are going on to play in college or hope to make it in professional ranks. Just those young people that are enjoying the experience. And we talked a little bit about how we might want to go about that and start to do more uh, work with those kinds of student athletes and, and publicize and celebrate and talk more and more about our mission and who we are and what makes us different than everybody else. And so I think that might be a, a direction that we want to head in this year to just accentuate the great thing that we have, not to denigrate what others are doing or decisions that parents make or students make about what they want to do in the club world or the travel world. And so that might be one thing you might see from us here coming up. And and I think one of the good things about that is let's focus on – and back in the day when you and I were with the leather helmets and no face masks, you played football, then a lot of guys went into basketball, then a lot of guys went into baseball, or you ran track. We don't really see – we do see some two-sport athletes, but the three-sport athlete is very rare these days. Is Do you think that's because of all of this specialization and private this and private that? No question, because in those days – and I'm older than you, so don't uh... – don't have to link yourself with how old I am. Uh, the, the point would be the seasons were very clear and distinct. And I think that's where you were able to see those multi-sport athletes, even in three seasons of sport. The issue now is the seasons sort of melt together because of all that happens in the out of high school season sports you know, time. And so that's, I think, the biggest casualty of this notion of allowing student athletes to be involved in more than one sport. They're just, there's a lot of blurred lines between fall, winter, and spring now, where back 
maybe back, you know, back in the day, back in, in my high school time, those seasons were pretty much, boy, when fall was over, it was over and there wasn't anything else going on. So you went to winter and then that, you know, same thing happened between winter and spring. I think we all know today, a week after the high school season's over, there's, you know, a soccer tournament to be had. There's a baseball and softball tournament to be in. And there's just not a lot of, of downtime between seasons in a particular sport anymore. And gone is the summer vacation with the family because now the summer vacations revolve around where is my club team playing? Where is my travel team playing? And I, I think that, hey, if parents want to do that, that's great. I, I was always a big proponent of telling my kids, hey, we're going on a family vacation because that's a little bit more important. I just wish parents would get back to that. But then again, you know, we don't control what people do. Well, we don't. And, and it's unfortunate that if parents' mindset is more about wanting to watch their young men or young women participate in sports as their, quote, family, unquote, vacation, then you're right. I think we've missed out on an experience that families should really be involved in and enjoy being involved in, that notion of going off as your family and maybe with others and friends, but you know, taking that special time that you're not going to get back. Uh, it's ironic. I'm here with my wife and, and and our oldest daughter, and they're listening as you and I are having a conversation. And as you, you know, talked about the difference of of the summertime, and you know, my wife's head was nodding up and down. You know, she absolutely agrees with you that we really want to prioritize and, and focus on a family time that's special. But some of this has been hijacked by those who are looking to make money and those who are looking to to make high school athletics a business. And certainly those are very profitable ventures for people who run these tournaments and run things during the summers when, when uh, I mean, we've just finished a couple of weeks here in Southern California with junior Olympic water polo, where they were coming from all over the place. I've got people talking about their baseball and softball tournament experiences, you know, in Colorado and in Arizona and in, Wherever else they're going, we've got the basketball players. It seems like the whole world's in Las Vegas for the last three or four weeks, you know, playing in tournaments out there. Uh, you know, it's on and on and on. Well, it's funny. My wife worked an AVP volleyball event yesterday down at Hermosa Beach. And and I said, you know what, let me get out of the sweat box I live in in Santa Clarita, go to the beach. And there were courts all over the place. And we, my son and I were just talking to some people. There were kids from Ohio. Florida, Puerto Rico, Utah, all over the place, all over the country. Now they're playing beach volleyball, and it, it, that's another year-round thing. And now parents are still – that's another thing where they're they're traveling all over the place, but not a bad thing to do to go to Hermosa Beach to watch volleyball being played. Well, how – very ironic because a year ago, uh, the gentleman who was organizing and a big part of running the AAU Sand Volleyball Championships that were in Hermosa Beach – invited me to come. And so my wife and I and our youngest daughter went and spent an afternoon watching. And you are absolutely right. There were hundreds and hundreds of young female student athletes, high school age, from all 50 states, it seemed like. And they spent days out in Hermosa Beach playing for the AAU championships. I, I had no idea it was on such a large scale. And he, he invited me specifically for that purpose. He said, Do you, you know, this is what I've been involved in. And he said, you should come and see this. I said, sure. And um, I do think that that's an up-and-coming sport for us in the CIF and certainly in the Southern Section. There just seem to be a lot of young 
student athletes participating in sand volleyball. And, and that was sure an indication of it a year ago. And we were at Hermosa beach probably a week before the professional tournament, you know, it was about a week or so before this last weekend. And that's a perfect segue into my next question. And we've seen a lot of growth of sports in the last several years. Most notable where I come from up in Santa Clarita is lacrosse. It has exploded up here. And in your most recent commissioner's message, you mentioned now that 20% of the schools in our section have lacrosse and there will be CIF championship games. How cool is that for our section and for these kids now to be able to compete for a CIF championship? Oh, we're very excited about that. We have always believed uh, lacrosse was going to be an up-and-comer. It's growing and growing. Certainly by adding CIF Southern Section Championships in that sport, we hope that that will continue to help that growth. So we're very, very excited to do it. We have uh, a plan to go forward with two divisions for the boys, two divisions for the girls to start out this this first time. And uh, we've got an advisory committee of lacrosse coaches and officials and people that will help us with that. And so, again, it's it's exciting to finally get there. 20% in some sections doesn't mean a whole lot. In our sections, you're talking about probably 115, 116 schools. And we have a section bylaw that only allows us to conduct a championship if 20% or more of our membership field that particular sport. So it did take lacrosse a little bit of time. There's some great pockets around our section that had lacrosse, but, you know, it needed to be picked up in the Santa Clarita area. It needed to be picked up in the Inland Empire. Needed to be picked up in some different places. We had pockets in Orange County and Santa Barbara and some some L.A., uh, South Bay. But we didn't have some of the other areas of our section that started to embrace it. And they've started to do that. And I think there'll just be more and more. There will be more and more. There's no doubt. I think it's going to be great. It's, it's such a cool sport. And, and when I played and, and I've coached up the youth up here in Santa Clarita, Kids absolutely love it because there's so much going on and and not to downgrade baseball because baseball is a very cerebral, methodical sport. Lacrosse, you give a teenage kid a stick and a helmet and say, go, you know, go swing the stick, hit somebody and go pick up the ball and throw it around. They love it. You're talking their language. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's the next sport you see making a splash? I've been in, in my kids club soccer travels. I've been to a lot of schools. And it's ironic we mentioned it, but beach volleyball, you see a lot of beach volleyball courts popping up in college or on high school campuses. And now you're seeing it more at the college level as well. Do you see that being the next big sport? I do. And I think we added cheer, traditional competitive cheer and competitive sport cheer two years ago. Lacrosse is going to come on board this year. And I think that we are definitely looking at, at sand volleyball as one of those next emerging sports. So looking forward to seeing how that might start to take off for us. I, and I think it's great. It's just more opportunities for kids. I'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Tony Moskal. We're continuing our conversation with CIF Commissioner Rob Wygod. Now, another issue people bring up, Rob, is the public versus private debate. You and I have spoken briefly about it. And you don't see the two being split up. And in some leagues, we've got both public and private. I look at the Marmani League, three publics, couple privates. We all know that privates have undefined boundaries and publics do. Is there a future where they would be split up? And what would, how many headaches and issues would that create for you guys? 
Well, it's interesting because we have found notes from meetings back in the 1920s that discussed the differences among public and private schools and concerns about, you know, a different playing field and so forth. I think we talked last week, the whole issues of competitive equity and, and really not worrying so much about the size of the school or the public-private idea, but just trying to find a system that lets student-athletes compete at a level they should compete with. We hope that that's done some things in this discussion of public and private. The one thing that's come up, and the one thing that, you know, I've, I've obviously had this discussion with a lot of people and, and actually talked about it with, with attorneys and, you know, that we have that work with us. And the one thing that I'm not sure people realize is if you're going to separate the public and private schools, then you're going to have to provide a reason why. And you're going to have to provide some information that is saying, you know, we must do this because there's a problem. So if the competitive issues are being decided where, you know, we have about 40% of our membership is private schools. When you get done at the end of the year and you add up who's won championships, what? 40% are private, 60% are public. So winning championships is one area where, you know, it doesn't really indicate that the private schools may have more of an advantage over, over public schools. The other point would be, you know, they're 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old student-athletes. One goes to a private school, one goes to public school. Are there real differences about those two young people? The one who attends the private school needs to play only those who attend private school because they're a different student-athlete than the student-athlete who attends public school? I don't think that's the case. They're the same young people. They've made choices of which schools to go to. The rules that are made by our membership apply to all schools. There is not a separate rule for publics and a separate rule for privates. The rules are the same. So when you really break this down, there are perceptions. I don't blame people for their perceptions, but there are perceptions that the private schools have major advantages in a lot of areas, specifically the attendance boundary issue, or just that supposedly there, there's athletic scholarships and, and all kinds of things that private schools get through the publics don't. But when you really take the time to study the issues and study the public-private dynamic, you realize the student-athletes, there's not a different student-athlete in a public school than a private school. There are advantages to private schools. There are advantages to public schools. There are rules that apply to both. So I think when you really get into it, you're going to have to find out what the justification is. You can't say that the private schools are winning everything because they're not. You can't say the private school student athletes are given an advantage over public school student athletes because they're not. So if you're going to make a, a major decision like that and try to pursue a, a, a ruling or a, or a format that divides the public and private, I think you're going to have trouble trying to justify the reasons why you would make that decision. And unfortunately, it, for those who, who are advocating for that, anything like that's going to have to stand the test going to have to stand, stand up to a legal challenge because you know it's going to come. And it wouldn't be responsible to go forward with a program or an idea where you know it, it may not stand up to a legal challenge because, again, someone's going to have to explain how this separation and what factors have led to this separation that make those student-athletes be placed in a position where they should not compete against each other. And furthermore, you would have to re-league everything you would then have to 
you know, look at scheduling and travel and, and all kinds of things like that. Because I remember when I was in high school and Crespi was in the old Del Rey League, and we'd have to go down to St. John Bosco every year. We'd have to go down to Loyola every year. Yet Notre Dame, St. Francis, and Alamany were kind of close. But, you know, those trips on a Friday night, they're, those are long trips. And, and the thing I see is that it would be tough for a, a St. Bonaventure and Oaks Christian who are at the, the, the far end of the Conejo Valley. Who do you put them with? How do you re-league everything? And then how do you re-league all the publics and stuff like that? Huge challenge. But I would tell you this, and, I, and I've told this to private school people for a long, long time. They have the most to lose. If, if something like this has to come forward, the public schools don't lose anything. The private schools will lose a lot. And I tell them all the time, you need to keep that in mind. The most successful private schools have been the ones that are you know, willing to work together. They see how they can coexist with their public school neighbors. They see how this can, can happen. Those that don't see that very well are the ones that get in trouble in terms of fueling the argument for separation. And if you really think about that, and if the private school folks who sometimes might want to step back for a moment and realize your best approach going forward to keep things the way you would like to keep them is that you need to be cognizant of the fact you need to work together and, uh, and be transparent, be upfront, and follow the rules. And if you do those things, why would anybody have a problem? Yeah, I, I think that the biggest problem people have is when private schools, when a kid leaves a public school, go to a private school, or a feeder junior high school has kids, and they all say, well, I'm going to go to XYZ private school, and I'm not going to go to the public school. I think public school coaches feel a little bit hurt and, and kind of upset. Oh, there we go, losing another one to a private. But sure. I've been one of those, man, just coach who you have. Don't, you can't control what people are going to do. Well, there's no question about that. And I, I experienced it myself, you know, as a coach at the schools that I worked at. It's, it's disheartening. You get disappointed. You, you feel like they're your students. You know, they came to our feeder middle school. They should all come to the, to the local high school. It doesn't always happen that way. Our public schools need to step it up too. They need to have great facilities. They need to have great coaches. They need to have everything about what they're trying to do to be at the best effort they can make. And I'm not saying the private schools are better. I'm not. It's, it's, it's that way in this reality today, public school, and I think we touched on it last week, public school and private school are both competing for students. There's no question about it. And parents are making choices and what their factors are. I would hope education is first. But if athletics is very high at the top of the list, then it's your job to represent your program and make your program the best it can be, no matter who you are. Because it's not just a competition between public and private. It's a competition between public and public. It's a competition between private and private. There are students and parents who are making choices not to attend their local public school to go to another public school. Yeah, that's another, that's a, a Rob, that's an issue for another, a whole yeah. other day. Is yeah. the public's now going out and doing what they're doing. Of course. And, you know, but everybody's chasing that, that D1 scholarship. 
And I think what a lot of people don't understand is there is so much more academic scholarship money out there than there is athletic scholarship. You look at NAIA schools, they, they give both athletic and academic. So if you're a good student and a good athlete, you can double up the amount of money you get. You're absolutely right. I, I'm a huge fan of Division Three NCAA. I'm a huge fan. My oldest daughter, our oldest daughter, went to Redlands. Redlands, Laverne, Chapman, Whittier, great places for education. If you want to play a sport, you can play it at a place where it's not the Division One meat grinder, where your entire life is taken over by the particular sport you're involved in, and you get a wonderful college experience. Now, again, for the, for the student athletes that are going to play in front of 100,000 people at Ohio State, I can't imagine a more unbelievable, incredible opportunity that is. Our, our youngest daughter attends the University of Mississippi. I've had the opportunity to go to a couple of football games at the University of Mississippi. I'm going to tell you. Grove down there, huh? I'm going to tell you. That is an experience that any student athlete and their parents would absolutely die for. It's fabulous. But like you already said, that's only available to a very select few. And therefore, where does this by far large amount of students go beyond high school? And unfortunately, parents and even students, they don't think there's any other type of opportunity but the University of Mississippi. And yeah. there is. There's a ton of different chances for you to go out and keep playing sports if you'd like. But most importantly, you're going to get a great education. And there's a lot of financial aid that's going to come your way that's going to help make that you know education at a great place affordable. And a lot of those Division three schools that have very large endowment funds, sure. You know, if you can't afford it, they're going to reach into their pocket if they really want you, and and they're going to help you pay for it. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. You're right. And the other great thing about them, they really want you out of there in four years. They truly do. You know, so many students getting through a, a college or university in four years is a, is a huge challenge. I didn't do it. It took me more than that to get through Cal State Long Beach. But I'll tell you, these schools are, are dedicated to getting the students through in four years. And I think that's I, wonderful. I told people I was in college for two terms. It was, it was the <laughs> Reagan term and then it was the Bush term. It, you know, I was there for a little while. Um, let's talk championship venues. As, as kids growing up, we see these places on TV, Dodger Stadium, Anaheim Stadium the Honda Center, and I've had the pleasure of calling games at all three. And it's a treat as well to go to a place like Deanna Manning Stadium in Irvine for softball, Azusa Pacific for basketball, and this year recently Cal Baptist. What's the process you guys go through to secure these places? And how cool is it for fans, players, coaches, and everybody to to experience the, the awesomeness of walking into Dodger Stadium to play a baseball game? There is no question that one of our prime thoughts and priorities is to try to create a championship experience that is memorable for everybody involved, win or lose. Student athletes, coaches, parents, fans, media, what we call stakeholders. Everybody's got a stake in this thing, and we want everybody to have a great championship experience. So with that comes the challenge to make sure that the venue lives up to that. 
So we have a variety of venues that we use. You've mentioned many of them. We're always on the lookout for the best venues that we can, can get for our championships. And we've been able to do that. You know, sometimes we, we were at the Honda Center for a while. We're not there currently. The expense of running a championship there continued to go up and up and up. So we we realized, and, and most of the time, the crowd wouldn't necessarily fill and be necessary to, to, to get to 15,000 people. So the Cal Baptist opportunity has been wonderful. The Azusa Pacific one is great. Our aquatics championships uh, in the beautiful facility they have in Riverside. Our water polo championships uh, at Woolett and Irvine at, at two 50-meter pools. We just we just continue to look for those great venues, and if we find a great one, you know, we'll continue to come back to it as long as they'll they'll have us and work with us. So that's a big thing for for us, and we really want people to leave that championship experience, whether they won or didn't win, that they that they enjoyed it. I'll give you a really quick example. The other night, and this is just part, I guess, the life of the commissioner. It happened to be attending a concert at the Five Point Amphitheater. And I'm there with my wife and another couple friends of ours. And the group that comes in front of us, I actually happen to know one of the guys. But one of the guys with them was an assistant baseball coach at Norco High School. And I looked at this guy and I said, I, I, we, uh, well, they had, Norco High School had been at Dodger Stadium at our championship finals division two this year. And I was probably 20 feet from that gentleman most of the time when I was watching the game. And we started talking about it. It was a 12 inning game. Unfortunately, they lost one to nothing in the in the twelfth inning. One of the greatest high school baseball games I've ever seen. And the coach looked at me and he said, "You know, we didn't win. Boy, we sure wanted to. There was nothing we wanted more. But I can't say that we walked away from that and didn't have an experience that's going to last a lifetime. And that's exactly what I wanted him to say. This was something that those young men that played on that team that night will always remember. And even though they didn't happen to win it, they're always going to be able to say." We were in a, a major league baseball stadium. We played a 12-inning, one-to-nothing baseball game where either team had a chance to win it. And it was one of the memories from my life that I'll never, ever forget. And it's funny, that story. I remember doing games at Dodger Stadium a couple of years ago. The kids walk out on the field. They look around. They take the pictures. Then they all go to the outfield wall, and they all try and jump to see if they can rob an imaginary home run yeah. from whoever. Yeah. We have, to watch them, we have to watch them really close because we're afraid they're going to pull up some grass and, like, put it in a Ziploc and try to take it home. Yeah, yeah there you go. I, I just think it's great. Um, you know, a lot of people and the old message board fodder about attendance at games and especially for the playoffs is down due to the, the streaming of games, the TV games. I, I see the streaming as a good thing because people from out of town get to see their schools play. They get to see their relatives play. But is the streaming of games taking away from playoff attendance or regular season attendance? You know, people bring that up a lot. We have seen declining attendance over the last three, four years. And it's a concern. There's no question about that. For me, I believe we have a great product. The more opportunity we have to showcase that product, the better. That includes live streaming and, and opportunities for more games to be out there for people to see. I think that we're doing a service, not a disservice. I think we're doing a service to our stakeholders to give that opportunity a, a chance to happen. We're very fortunate, as we talked about last week. Our deal with Fox Sports 
the different streaming entities, including theirs that we work with. Nobody else has that. And so people might say, well, there might be some some folks who stay home and don't come out and, and support the game in person. We hope that's not the case. We really do. If you want to come to the game, it's there for you. It's reasonably priced. It's exciting. And we hope that would never go away. But I won't, I don't think we should, I'm not sure artificially is the right word, but I don't think we should limit opportunities for exposure for this wonderful product that we have in the hope that maybe a few more people would come out to the game. We hope they're going to come out to the game and regardless whether it's streamed or not, but if they decide to stay home to watch it, well, then there's also a benefit from that. Obviously, the people that we partner with, the more people that are watching and listening, the more valuable that can be. And we also have to think a little bit about a paradigm shift, perhaps. There is a huge emphasis on it, on attendance. A lot of our uh, budget and financial structure is dependent upon that. But there's not as made much demand, potentially, as we've seen in the last couple, three years. And maybe there's more demand from the streaming and the other ways that the games can be televised. So we may need to shift a little bit towards what is in demand versus what recently hasn't looked like has been in as much demand. So I think it's a big picture. I also think each year is its own year. In competitive equity playoffs, the one thing we're not in control of is matchups. If you get the right matchups, attendance can go off the charts. I'm going to give you a quick example. We get ready for the football semifinals, and there were a couple different divisions where, it, depending on how a, a semifinal game had worked out or two, there can be a ten to twenty to thirty thousand dollar difference. Not just us, but for the schools involved because we revenue share. If 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 certain teams win, so we had two teams out in the end of the empire that were arch rivals, both playing in the semifinals, and only one of them advanced. Well, if both of them advanced, that was going to be a huge night. It was going to be a overflow crowd. It was going to be a very profitable night on the financial side. We had the same thing happen in Orange County. We had two Orange County teams playing in the semifinals who would have matched up in the finals, and it would have been off the charts and 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 overflowed, and and the it would have been a huge, huge thing for the schools and for for our office. So, again, that was last year. Those two particular games might have been a thirty thousand dollar difference, and. So that's that's something that each year has its own story to tell. And obviously we can't control who's going to win and who's not. So however the cards fall is how the cards fall. But if there are two Orange County teams playing each other, and I'll just give you those two examples, it was Corona Del Mar and Villa Park. Corona Del Mar and Villa Park win their semifinals. They're going to play each other in the neighborhood, and that's probably going to be huge. Well, only Corona Del Mar advanced, and they got to play up at uh, Sierra Canyon. Well, there's a – a pretty big difference between South Orange County and Sierra Canyon in terms of travel from Corona Del Mar to Villa Park. And so those are the kinds of things that can happen. And and you might think, well, Rob, this is such a big deal over such a broad spectrum. Yes, but it's also game by game. And so just that game and maybe a couple others that, that if they worked a different result, then attendance may not have been down. And so kind of have to look at it that way too. Each year is a different year. Yeah, I know that I was up in Lompoc last year, and I think they played Capital Valley. What a ride for yeah. Capital Valley. Yeah, yeah. And, so you know, I'm, that's I'm, one of the things people ask about with competitive playoffs. You know, are we sacrificing a little bit where just based on how things might work out, you know, there was never a time that Lompoc would have played Capital Valley in the same division. 
but right. they know that potentially can happen. Well, what do you want to do? Make sure that Lompoc plays somebody close to home, Kappa Valley plays somebody close to home, and the games are 40-point blowouts. Or, yeah, we've got to match the two of them up, and I think the game was a 10-point game. So, you know, that's that's the, the measure of this. But as I said, even with that, there can be closer matchups that happen. And each year, as I said, sort of has its own journey. And, and, and I would never want us to be in a position where we're controlling who wins and who doesn't. It doesn't work that way. We have no idea. People would tell me, especially with championship venues, you know, they'll say, well, why don't you have this championship venue closer to home? And I always say, look, if you can tell me three months in advance who the two teams are going to be in the championship final, I'll find you a venue. But if I don't know that three or six months out, I got to find the best venue we can find. And whoever happens to make it there is going to make it there. We're going to have a great experience for them. And if I had that on it, you know, but then every once in a while, if there are schools close to home and there's a way to work it out, we have actually moved some championship finals where the two schools, I mean, we went, we had a water polo final in Santa Barbara one night when the girls had two schools from Santa Barbara playing, we didn't make them come down to Orange County, down to Irvine. They played up in Santa Barbara in front of a thousand people. It's one of the greatest nights I've ever been part of. I drove up there for the game. It was fantastic. So again, you know, we didn't know three months before that the two Santa Barbara schools were going to make it. But when they actually did, we said, wait a minute, let's readjust. Let's see if we can make this happen in Santa Barbara. And we did. And that's awesome. And it's great for the kids, too, because now the neighborhood gets to show up and there are more people there to watch them play and support both schools. Oh, of course. And that was on the heels of been devastating fires in that area. Ventura, Ojai, it was a couple of years ago. And I thought, you know, this is a celebration. This has been a, a community that's that struggled, had some terrible things happen, loss of life, loss of property. We can offer this chance for them to celebrate them in their own backyard. And it was a fantastic, I wrote it up. I, I wrote it, my message to the commissioner. I called it unforgettable. It was unforgettable. It was really a, a special, special night. And those people really deserve that because they've been through a lot. And good for, good for you guys for changing that. Uh, last thing I want to talk about, previously you mentioned expanding social media. Yeah. How is the Southern Section doing that? And how much is it helping to get information out to people? And have you seen a positive response from it, from the amount of followers, from the amount of communication you guys have gotten? There is absolutely no question that that has been the result. We brought on board last year, a year ago, a digital media coordinator. Her name is her name is Chelsea Hayward, very bright young lady. And she has come on board in the last year as the one to direct all of our social media platforms, all of the information that we're sending out. There was a time that we always said to everybody, go to our website, go to our website. Everything's on our website. Well, there still is that. But people aren't on their computer. People aren't sitting at their desk. People are on their phone. And we have to make sure that we're advancing and evolving and improving our communication skills so that we can make sure that we engage people where they are and what what they're looking for things. So we couldn't be more pleased with the first year of having, we've committed to that position. We've committed resources that we really want to emphasize our social media. And Chelsea's done a wonderful job of coordinating that for us. And I think we're just going to get better at it. In terms of numbers, our increases of Twitter, our increases on Facebook, 
all the different things that we're doing, they just keep growing and growing and growing because people, we've, we have, we started eight years ago with social media. We had never had a social media program. I sat down with our director of communications at the time, now assistant commissioner, who you know well, Tom Simmons. And I said, Tom, what are we going to do here? He said, we need to get started in social media. I said, you're correct. So let's get started. Within two, three years, we as the high school, there's a, a score they use to register the amount of engagement on social media. We within maybe three to four years, we're the second largest high school sports organization engaged on social media behind the Texas Interscholastic League. We were ahead of every other state in the country, every other section in California. We were second behind Texas. There's actually been a couple of times we've gotten ahead of Texas. And so from zero, when I first started as commissioner, to where we are today, where we actually have a full-time digital media coordinator, I think it speaks volumes of our commitment to it, but then even more how much it's helped us and helped us keep the stakeholders involved. And, and Tom deserves a tremendous amount of credit for that. He started educating himself and learning about it and, and did a lot of great work. There's another young lady named Jacqueline Gibson, who's our marketing manager. She did an awful lot of our social media work with Tom as we got it off the ground. And then now that we have Chelsea as a full-time employee in our office, we've really, I think, met that challenge with social media. And I think we're going to continue to, to grow and, and keep it moving forward because that's the future. That's where it is. Guys like me, it's crazy to think about this kind of, of stuff that's going on, but those that we want to engage with are not me. They're, they're people on those phones who are, are getting a lot of good information from the Southern section through social media. And, and as I said, there's some people doing a wonderful job to make that happen. And I still read my newspaper every morning, but what? with with my own kids and high school kids, I'll, if I don't know what I'm doing, I give my phone to a kid and say, show me how to do this. And they do. And it's great. Yeah, no question. I'm in the same boat. Well, Rob, I can't thank you enough for taking the time these last two weeks to speak with me and discuss all of these topics. I love the ground that we covered. And I, as always, I look forward to seeing you out at some events this year. I look forward to seeing Tom and, and all of your staff because they're such a, a pleasure to work with. Uh, thanks again, Rob. Well, you're welcome, Tony. It's been my pleasure to be with you. And you're right. I'll look forward to seeing you as well out there. And we're going to have a great year in 19, 2019, 2020. And you're part of that. And all those folks that care about high school athletics are part of that. And we'll look forward to uh, some great stories to come. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us at Believe.com and Believe at Believe Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Tony Moskal, T-O-N-Y-M-O-S-K-A-L. If you've got any feedback, please let me know via Twitter. If you like the show, let me know. If you didn't, let me know. If you've got suggestions, please send them my way. Like I said last week, I hope to cover as many sports as possible. Thank you for joining us here on Believe. Until next time, I'm Tony Moskal. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Believe. 
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.